Good morning, everybody. Great to see you this morning and worship with you. And uh, before we discuss um, the Bible this morning, why don't we just invite the Lord to guide us in that part of the service? So will you bow your heads with me for a short word of prayer? Dear God, thank you for giving us each other. Thank you for the family of believers, Lord. Where would we be if we didn't have our brothers and sisters encouraging us in our faith, Lord, speaking life into us and challenging us and convicting us and being living examples of you all around us, God. We thank you so much for this spiritual family that you've given us to come and worship you together with. And this morning, we just pray that as we reflect on the Bible together, God, that you would indeed work in our hearts, open our spiritual eyes and help us to apply what's from you, God, this morning to our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this series, we'll be looking at various characters from the Bible. And of course, every character in the Bible is found in the context of a story in the Bible. And when I went to seminary, I had no idea what a story was or how a story even worked. And what my professor said to me was, he said, stories follow a general pattern. There's a variety of ways to tell a story, but they follow a general pattern. And that pattern is that they often begin by establishing the, the, the characters and the setting. Uh, characters like the protagonist of the story, the one who drives the action of the story. And of course, there's an antagonist who opposes the protagonist, and sometimes even there may be a foil. Someone who the antagonist uses um, to get at the protagonist, who ultimately shines light on the protagonist. There's also, of course, something that goes wrong in the story. Um, it may start off well, but very quickly there's a problem that will arise. And that problem, it, it increases, it grows from scene to scene of the story until eventually it just can't get any worse. And that's when you might say, well, we've reached the climax of the story, which is followed by a twist. Meaning at that point, the story either has a twist that results in a happy ending or a twist that results in a sad and tragic ending. And so after my, oh, and as I should say, right there in the twist, he said, is where you'll find the lesson of the story, that you, like a principle that you can learn from uh, in the story. And after he sort of explained these elements of the story to me, he said, you'll want to remember how stories work. Because the Bible is full of stories. Over half of the Bible is stories. In fact, he said, the Bible itself is a story. It's a story, he said, that begins at creation. God spoke the universe into existence. And you don't have to wonder if it was a good existence because it says it right there in the text. It says it was good. And you can just see all the ways that it's good when you read the story. They, um, they have lots of delicious food to eat all around them, right? Apparently, it's a perfect environment because they're naked. Let's see. 
they have jobs, so there's no unemployment. Um, there's no death. There's no suffering. And perhaps best of all, they enjoy a perfect relationship with God and with each other. But if you read the story, it doesn't last very long. Like most stories, the beginning that's perfect within actually just a few paragraphs gets wrecked. And who wrecks it? Satan. Satan gets them to sin, but he wrecks the beauty and perfection of creation. You see, if the Bible is a story, then clearly God is the protagonist of the story. He's the one who drives the action of the story. And Satan, he's the antagonist. And you and me, humanity, is the foil. We're the ones who Satan uses to get at God. Most good stories have a backstory. And does the Bible have a backstory? It does. Before God created the physical world, he created a spiritual world full of angelic beings. And of all of these angels, there was one angel who ranked higher than all the rest, second only to God, and it was Satan. And yet despite his special status and ranking, he wasn't satisfied with his position. He wasn't content. He looked at God and he wanted to be God. He wanted to sit on the throne of heaven. He knew he couldn't take God on by himself. And so what did he do? He began to recruit angels to join him. He began to launch a rebellion. And we don't know how he got the angels, so many of them, to join him. But he must have held out a promise of something pretty good. Because that's how you start a rebellion. You sow seeds of discontent. And you say, if I was in charge, your life would be much better. And he must have been good, a good salesman, because God is good. And so we don't know what he said. We don't know what promises he held out, but, but that's, how you, that's how you get people to turn on their leader. You say, if I was in charge, you'd be getting paid what you actually deserve for your work. If I was in charge, you'd get enough vacation so that you could actually be rested enough to do the job you're supposed to do. Whatever he told them, it was enough together for them to be willing to risk everything to join him. Because if you launch a rebellion and you lose, you're in trouble. And he must have thought he could win. Because no one, no one starts a war that they know they're going to lose. And Satan isn't stupid. 
So he must have thought that in just a few moments, he would be sitting on the throne of heaven. And yet when that day came, when one-third of the angels joined him in his attack on heaven, he didn't win. We don't know how long it took God to rebuff Satan's attack on the gates of heaven. But something tells me it didn't take God very long to beat him off. Something tells me when you attack God, it's not a long, drawn-out battle. I think he swept Satan and his angels out of his presence like you sweep crumbs off a table. And he went from thinking that in just a moment he'd be on the throne of heaven to being in hell. And how did that make him feel? How did Satan feel when he's, when he's defeated by God, when he thought he would be God? Probably not very good. He probably felt humiliated and angry and bitter. But what could he do? What could he do to get back at God? If he tried launching more attacks, they would all fail. If he said, you know, maybe it's because our plan wasn't secret enough. Let's, let's hatch a secret plan. And he brought all the demons together and they came up with a plan to take over heaven. As soon as they came up with the plan, God would know about it. He knows everything. Or if he decided to sneak up on God, you know, we'll just wait till he's not looking. We'll hide and then we'll jump out at him. But if he did, who would be there? God, because he's everywhere. So we don't know how much time passes, but I think Satan just stews in anger and hatred for God. God hurt him and he wants revenge. He wants to hurt God. And maybe eon after eon, he just stews like a volcano, angry at God with no way to get even. But one day, he sees the perfect opportunity. For some unknown reason, God decides to create again. This time, not a, a spiritual world, but a physical one. And it's massive. But in all of the millions and millions of solar systems, there's just one blue planet. So Satan didn't have to be a genius to know that there might be something special about this planet. And on that one planet, there was one garden. And Satan didn't have to be a genius to think there might be something special about this garden. And there in the center of the garden was the crown of all creation, humanity. And he must have known that they were special because every evening God himself would come and walk with them in the garden. They were dating. They were in love. And so Satan saw an opportunity to hurt God, to break 
their relationship. When the mafia can't get even with someone who's crossed them because they're too powerful, what they'll do is they'll hurt someone close to them. They'll kill their nephew, touch their daughter, make them pay for what they've done. And so Satan slithers into the Garden of Eden, drops a few questions, and just like that, humanity turns their back on the God who gave them everything. I don't know if you've ever been evicted. I've seen someone be evicted, and it's, it's painful to be told, you're no longer welcome here. You need to go find somewhere else to live. And Adam and Eve were evicted from the Garden of Eden by an angel with a flaming sword. And if you're reading the story up to that point, it does not feel good. It feels like Satan is winning. And if you keep reading, it doesn't exactly get better because sin starts to spread. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. And God even warns Cain. He says, sin is crouching at your door. You have to rule over it, but he doesn't. And he murders his own brother. Humanity continues to spread. They fill the earth like they're supposed to. But as they fill the earth, sin fills the earth too. It gets so full with sin that God finally decides to just hit the reset button and start over. He decides to wipe everyone out. He takes the one righteous man on earth named Noah. He preaches for over a hundred years while he builds the ark and no one listens. So the waters come. And except for Noah and his family and the animals, the entire earth's population is wiped out. And, and if you're reading it and you start to feel a tinge of hope like I did, it doesn't last very long. Because Noah gets off of the ark and within a few paragraphs, what happens? He gets drunk. The one righteous guy. And he's a lush. They continue to fill the earth and, and, and spread once again, all over again. And it, it's almost like God just gives up on humanity. And he just picks one family to work with. Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as you start to read about this family, you realize pretty quickly that they're at least as dysfunctional as your family and my family. Abraham believes God and is credited to him as righteousness, but Abraham's also the guy who, who goes into a foreign country with his family, and when the king says, who's that woman with you? He looks at his wife, and what does he say? He's like, oh, her? Oh, that's my sister. God has to do a, a miracle to get them out of that situation, but it must not have been a, a positive impact on their relationship. And Sarah's not exactly perfect either. If you remember, she wants to have a child, but she can't. And so she comes up with the bright idea of inviting Abraham to sleep with her maid so they could have a child. Because what could go wrong when you ask your husband to sleep with your maid? Of course, you know that a lot, of course, 
goes wrong. It puts a horrible strain on their relationships. The boy almost dies. An entire antagonistic nation comes to them uh, from the situation. Isaac is uh, kind of seems like a, a mama's boy, and he's so infirm at the end of his life that he's, he's deceived by his son. Esau, if you remember, trades his birthright for a bowl of soup. Now, my mom makes really good soup, so I'm a little sympathetic whenever I read that story. But your birthright? Everything that goes along with being a member of the covenant family of God for one bowl of soup. Not exactly a wise businessman. Jacob swindles his father out of his brother's blessing. And even his own mom says, you've got to run. You've burned your relationships so bad that if you don't leave, they're going to kill you. So he flees and he finds Laban. Problem is, Laban is a bigger cheat than Jacob. He works for him for seven years, and many people think that Jacob also had a drinking problem. Because what happens after seven years? He marries someone and doesn't realize until the next morning that he married the wrong person. He eventually cheats Laban and has to run from there as well. And while he's heading to the only other place he can go, back home, who comes out to meet him? Esau, his brother, who he fled from with 400 men. And so Jacob, uh, he sends gifts up ahead, washing machines and dryers and, and dishwashers. He thinks, maybe I can appease him with appliances. And then... He has the bright idea of sending his family next, which might explain, at least to some degree, why his children were so messed up. Because when Esau's coming to slaughter him, his kids say, Dad, are you coming? He's like, no, I'm sending you to meet him. I'll hide back here. Jacob eventually does um, come back to God, but a famine breaks out. And the people of God have no choice but to take refuge in Egypt. And you might think, okay, but they're the people of God. So in Egypt, I'm sure they became a great and mighty rulers of all of Egypt. But of course, you'd be wrong. Because what happens is that the people of God become slaves in Egypt. Human tools. The lowest of the low that you can possibly be. And they're stuck in Egypt for 420 years. And who seems to be winning? Satan. God eventually does lead them out of Egypt. Takes, you know, 10 miracles. And he draws them out of Egypt. But when they come to the border of the promised land, they don't go in. Because they say the grapes are too big. And the people are too big. We can't go in and take the promised land. Which you feel sympathetic for them. But they had just seen God crush the greatest army in the world in the Red Sea. And they can't trust him to get them across the Jordan and keep them safe in the promised land. 
God gets so upset with them that he decides to kill them all. They wander in the desert for 40 years. Can you imagine just wandering in the desert for 40 years waiting to die? And eventually they do. The entire generation dead in the desert. And when they are led into the promised land, a whole new generation under the leadership of the judges, they finally become the godly nation that God always wanted them to be. Right? No. Under the judges, they go through cycles of sin, suffering, and crying out to God for help. Sin, suffering, crying out to God for help over and over and over again. And who seems to be winning? Satan. But then... The, the people cry out, they ask for a king, and God sends them a king, and this king is so righteous that he leads the people in repentance and obedience to God, and they become a light to the world like God always intended them to be, right? No, the kings are mostly evil, and the people sin and sin and sin, and eventually they split to 10 northern tribes and two southern tribes. God sends prophet after prophet to the northern tribes and they don't listen. And so finally, God just destroys them. His purposes are better carried out if they're dead. And who seems to be winning? There's only two tribes left. But then, then the southern kingdom sees what happens to the northern kingdom. And they decide to throw off their sin and be obedient to God and be this holy, righteous emblem of justice in the world, right? Of course not. God sends them prophet after prophet, but they keep sinning too. God finally has them carried off into exile by the Babylonians. They do eventually get brought back. Thank you, Nehemiah, in that story. But once they get back and they build the walls, they look at Jerusalem and everyone agrees. It's nothing like it used to be. They're a fourth-rate nation, insignificant on the world stage. And who seems to be winning? Satan. I don't know if you've ever received the silent treatment from someone you're in a relationship with. I never have, but I've heard about it. And it's not fun because you try to communicate with the person and they're so upset with you that they won't even respond. They might, you, might, you might even hear them stomping down the hallway or slamming doors, but no words, no communication. And it hurts because you know it means the relationship has been ruptured, has been hurt. And if, if someone came to you and said, you know, my spouse and I are having issues, troubles, and we haven't spoken in two days, you'd probably say, ooh, that's, that's painful. If they came to you and they said, my spouse and I have been, have been struggling and we haven't spoken in two weeks, 
you'd probably say, wow, that's, that's pretty bad. If they came to you and they said, I haven't spoken to my spouse in two years, most of us would agree it's probably over at that point because communication is like oxygen to a relationship. What if there was a couple who hadn't spoken in 400 years? That was the silent treatment that God gave to Israel. Didn't speak for 400 years. And what must they have assumed then? It's over. He's given up on us. But one day, a child was born. The second Adam meaning the only other person to walk the face of the earth, not tainted by sin. The only hope of humanity. And he had such potential if it wasn't for the so-called wise men. They're called the wise men, but do you know what they do? They go right to King Herod and they say, where's the king of the Jews been born? To Herod, the guy who historians tell us was paranoid about anyone taking his power. He would kill anyone he even suspected of threatening the throne, including his own family members. The only people less wise than the so-called wise men are the leaders of the Jewish people because Herod summons them next. And he says, where's the king of the Jews going to be born? And they tell him. They say, yes, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And they quote chapter and verse. Satan made a mistake, I think. He used a king to do a devil's job. And lots of babies got slaughtered. But they missed the Messiah. God hid him in Egypt, and I don't think Satan knew where he was. He knew he had a problem, but he couldn't solve it because he couldn't find him. Until one day, Jesus decided to begin his earthly ministry. Satan had just been waiting and waiting and waiting until Jesus goes to John the Baptist to be baptized. John doesn't want to baptize him, but he's, Jesus says to fulfill all righteousness, you need to baptize me. And when Jesus comes up out of the water, it says heaven is split open and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove and a voice from heaven says, this is my son who I love and who I'm well pleased with. And who is God talking to? To John the Baptist? To the people watching? To you and me? Yes. But he's talking to Satan. He's saying, here he is. This is my boy. You've been attacking my helpless, defenseless people all this time. Why don't you come and face a real man? Let's go 1v1. 
And the Holy Spirit immediately takes him to the desert where he meets Satan. And for the first time since Satan stormed the gates of heaven, God and Satan go at it. Satan, who's good, brings his three best temptations. And yet, he can't get Jesus to switch sides. He can't get Jesus to fall. Which says a lot. Because he got a third of the angels. And he got Adam and Eve to fall. But for the first time, a man just says no. And so you have to hand it to Satan. Because he pivots. He immediately switches strategies. If you can't get him to switch and join you, the next best thing is to kill him. Because the longer he's here, the more damage he's going to do. And so what does he do? Well, he's good. He gets the very people who are supposed to welcome Jesus to hate him. He so twists the minds and hearts of the religious leaders that they begin to plot to kill Jesus at their earliest possible convenience. He even infiltrates the 12. And he gets Judas to turn on Jesus for a few pieces of silver. And how does Judas betray Jesus? With a kiss. What irony that Jesus came to restore the love relationship between God and humanity and we betray him with a kiss. And the one hope for humanity is tried, found innocent, and condemned to death. He's mocked, beaten, spit upon, and crucified. And can you imagine the party in hell that night? If there was ever a celebration in hell, it was when they killed Jesus. Because Satan won. The one hope for humanity was dead. The disciples knew it. That's why they went back to fishing. And yet, is there a twist in the story of creation? Yes. It's the resurrection. Can you imagine the scream from hell the next day when Satan hears that Jesus is alive? That he never was winning? That God had planned the crucifixion from before the creation of the world? That he knew Satan so well, he knew what he would do at every turn. And he played right into his hand. And when Satan died on the cross, it wasn't the death of humanity's hope. But it was the payment for their sins. And when he rose from the dead, it was so that we could all rise from the dead. And be restored to the love relationship with him that was lost. Oh, he must have been furious. When the penny dropped. And he realized he'd been outsmarted all along. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost to the believers. And though they were persecuted, it couldn't stop 
God working in them as the gospel began to spread like wildfire. And now we live in the last days. Not because it's a short amount of time to the end, but because there's no more mystery left in the story. No more twist. And we share the good news that our relationship with God can be restored because Jesus is alive. And we await his return to establish the new heavens and the new earth. Not just a happy ending, but happier even than it began. In this series, we'll be looking at various Bible characters who are found in stories in the Bible. We looked at the big picture of the whole Bible story this morning, but we know that within this Bible story is lots of smaller characters and stories and that we just brushed over. So we'll be looking at some characters in the Bible and seeing how God uses people like you and me to fulfill his purposes. Will you pray with me? Let's say a word of prayer. Dear God, thank you for reminding us that the people in the Bible, Lord, even the ones who you use for mighty purposes, God, they're only great because they see your greatness and they follow and love you and are empowered by your grace and your greatness, God. Thank you for the humility that comes when we read the Bible and we see that you are the one who drives the story and that we find our life the way it was meant to be lived in love with you when we surrender to your will and your plan and your purpose. And I just pray that as we stand now and worship you, God, that you would be delighted in our praise and our thoughts and even our conversation as we continue to worship you today. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.